Happy New Year, DSR listeners! This year, we're adding even more content and benefits for members, including a new weekly column written by David Rothkoff, more exclusive content, new shows and hosts, and soon, a new membership option that will include a mix of live and virtual events and interactive discussions. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. Membership is just $5 per month or $50 per year. To become a member, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you and Happy New Year. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another in our series of podcasts in which we talk to important authors about important books that we think you ought to be reading. Recently, our friend Rana Faruhar of the Financial Times put out a book called Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. Once upon a time, I would encounter Rana over pots of fondue at Davos. <laughs> Not anymore, David. But both of us are smart enough not to be in Davos right now. <laughs> and you have a kind of un-Davosian approach in this book, which is to note that there are some forces that are contrary to the globalization we were told was going to take over everything. I've seen those coming for a while myself and think you get it exactly right. What led you to go down this road? <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I sometimes think that covering financial markets and global economy, as I have for 32 years now, will make you a socialist. And <laughs> I think that attending Davos for 21 years, which I did, will make you a, a deglobalization person. And yeah, I mean, I guess that the way I come at my journalism and the way I come at my books tends to be to try and bring the tools and the analysis and the theses that are being put forward by the global elites and then kind of match them against the felt experience in the real world. And I would say that for much of my reporting life, there's been a dramatic gap between how the people crafting the rules of, I would say, neoliberal globalization for the last half century or so have viewed their work and the way everybody else has been experiencing it. And that's what this book is about. And I think that I always thought that there would be eventually a kind of remooring of global markets in the real economy for all sorts of reasons. And I think we are at that pivot point now. Yeah, we certainly are, as you know, because we met back in the day. I was part of the Clinton administration, and we were out there banging the drums of globalization. This was, you know, the, the big tide of history. And it would ultimately benefit everybody. But, you know, in retrospect, I guess I, I'm a little like you. I think it's all made me into being a socialist. In retrospect, the consequences for all of this for the average person were ignored. And um, 
or not emphasized sufficiently. And some places that were more sensitive to that have had greater success in blunting the backlash to globalization. And, you know, I think it's interesting to me as I read the book, I think the Biden administration kind of gets it. And they have switched fairly dramatically from even the policies of of Obama and Clinton, and also, of course, the intervening Republican administration, to a policy that's much more, well, one of homecoming, to use the title Aww, of your book. Thank you for the little uh, unsolicited <laughs> plug. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, 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 look, this whole podcast is an unsolicited plug. But you know, I don't think they've articulated it particularly well. I just think they've done it. Well, that's a really good point, actually. And I would agree with you. You know, it's interesting for the book. I, I went to a lot of swing states. I went to a lot of places that have been kind of on the sharp end of globalization, Rust Belt Midwest, parts of the South, certain coastal urban areas. And I was really interested that the Trump trade message, or should we say Bob Lighthizer's trade message, which, you know, I think he was really the, the only person that mattered in, in that policy, was still much more salient to a lot of people in terms of, oh, yeah, they put tariff, Trump put tariffs on China. That was a good thing. He was being tough on China versus the more nuanced, but ultimately more developed and more constructive and fuller Biden policy, which is, yeah, we're going to keep the parts of the Trump trade policy that, that work and we're going to keep some of these tariffs on. And in fact, we're going to go further in certain areas, semis, capital flows, but we're also going to think about what is a coherent competitiveness strategy at home. You're totally right. That has not trickled through yet as a, as a message to a lot of places, which is a bummer and is disturbing. Now, to be fair, as I'm sure you know, having you know, lived and worked in Washington for decades, it's so much easier to come up with a blunt force message or even just a single sort of blunt policy solution like tariffs rather than a real, hey, we need to reconstruct 40 years of a neoliberal system into something that is not so much about asset hikes, that's more about wage gains. We have to think about domestic economic policy and how it relates to our foreign policy. I mean, these are complicated things, but it's, I agree with you. He gets it, his team gets it, and they are in lockstep, which is awesome. Yeah, I also think they've done some things that would have been unthinkable without much pushback. You know, I mean, when I was in the Clinton administration, as I've said on some of our other podcasts before, if I had used the term industrial policy, I would have been defenestrated um, <laughs> because that was, you know, horrible. Competitiveness policy, same reason. I sat in rooms with people saying unions are a thing of the past. They don't matter anymore. I sat in rooms with people who said, Europe doesn't get it. They, you know, they haven't figured out the formula. But here we are with a policy that's a little bit more respectful of what Europe has done because it emulates a bit of it. They speak of industrial policy without blinking. Same with competition policy, made in USA, et cetera. You know, all these things that we didn't say before. And there has been virtually no pushback. Absolutely. And, it, you know, actually, what's so fascinating to me is that parts of the right have adopted this message, right? I mean, you look at somebody like Marco Rubio, 
you know, is pushing forward legislation with Ro Khanna that is absolutely about industrial strategy. I mean, it, it's kind of amazing to me, frankly, and you would know the <laughs> the deep stories of this time better than me, but but one of them in my book, actually, I, I interviewed uh, the late labor leader, Richard Trumpka, as part of the book. And um, he told me this fascinating example of talking to a Clinton-era policymaker they were trying to talk about the impact of trade deals, trade globalization, and in particular, the kind of ascent of, of China into the WTO, which was coming in a few years, how that was going to affect U.S. labor. And he told me, this was just amazing, I'll never forget it, that this policymaker said, look, we know this is going to be tough for you guys, but don't worry. Things are going to level out after a certain period of time. Wages are going to equalize globally. And in the meantime, you know, you're going to get all this cheap stuff. And he said, well, how long is this going to take? And he told me that the policymaker told him three to five generations, which that right there is where we are. That is Trump. That is why my hometown in Indiana went 76% Trump. That's Brexit. That's so many things, right? But it's also, and this, I'm getting a little wonky, but this is a wonky podcast, I think. Um, it's at the core of what is and should be an existential crisis in economics, which is just full of so much bullshit, I got to say. And I'm, I don't even know if I can say that on this podcast, but I'm going to. Um, it is a discipline that is absolutely ripe for, I mean, it is imploding. <laughs> There's just a lot of people that don't want to think that it is because it's so far away from the real world. And I suspect that because there's so many pivot points right now, demographically, geopolitically, technologically, from a monetary policy standpoint, that the models that would have predicted X, Y, or Z, you know, 30 years ago and have proven to be wrong, they're going to be even more wrong in the future. So I'm glad that we have a president and we have an administration that is saying, you know what, we're actually going to get out on Main Street and see what the heck's happening and maybe factor that into our policy decisions. Yeah, no, no kidding. I, I, I saw the other day a video clip that Larry Summers, and you can say what you will about the left, their problems on the, uh, I mean, the right, their problems with, you know, sort of centrist Democrats as well, the neoliberal consensus. And there it was an interview with Larry while he was sitting on a beach with palm trees in the background <laughs> saying something to the effect that unemployment was too low you know, and we really needed to keep our eye on inflation. And, you know, I, I know, you know, he was one of the guys calling Biden all the time. And there was a, a, a brief period where people sort of thought, oh, yeah, he got it right. There was inflation. But the point was, Biden said, look, we're in this post-COVID crisis. Let's create jobs. Let's lift up tens of millions of people. Let's create programs so that children do not starve. If that causes a little bit of inflation, let's try to manage that so it's not too much. And let's not let the concerns of the bond market outweigh the concerns of Main Street. And so, I, you know, I just I'm bringing this up just to say, yeah, you're right. Well, you know, it's funny <laughs> that anecdote about summer. I literally just before I got on this podcast, I was having my lunch downstairs in my kitchen and I opened New York magazine. And you know how they've got that like Venn diagram of high-end, despicable, low-end, despicable. At the very top of low-end, despicable was a little spy magazine Larry head with a Mai Tai. And we need more people to lose their jobs before we can control inflation. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think uh, everybody's getting the message. But yeah, it's a deep thing. And it's not even just about 
look, we're good progressives and these terrible neocons or neolibs, whatever side you know, you're know you on, are, are, are making the wrong decisions and thinking about the bond market. This is about, I believe, and this was sort of the topic of my first book, Makers and Takers, which was too early. I thought, I thought financialization had reached its peak you know, around 2012. Not at all. We have an economy that is based so much on asset price hikes and is so desperate for some income-based growth that it's it just doesn't work anymore. I mean, this is why we're getting, you know, higher velocity of financial crises. I think we still haven't hit the bottom in the market. I bet you we're going to have a, another big correction in a tighter time span than we would have in the past. At the same time, despite this, like all the worries about wage inflation amongst policy circles, if you actually factor in the cost of living increases and the fact that everything that makes you middle class has been rising at triple the core inflation rate, if not more, then you get negative wage inflation. That math just doesn't work. And I'll be very, very interested to see, you know, in in six to nine months when the rest of that stimulus money cushion is tapped out where we are. I I have mixed feelings about this because in some ways it takes a crisis to really, really continue the change that we need to make. On the other hand, we really need this administration to stay in power. And it drives me nuts when I go on CNN to do a hit and people are like, is Biden responsible for inflation? You know, it's just like, no, no. (laughs) Where do we start with this? It's been 40 years of a paradigm that is tapped out. Well, right. And, 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 and of course, inflation is a global phenomenon and corporate profiteering is responsible for a lot of inflation. And why do they do the corporate profiteering? Because the CEOs are getting paid on the appreciation of assets because they're getting paid in stock. And they're, you know, it's, it's a kind of a vicious circle. One of the other things, though, that you get to in the book, and I think this is equally important to acknowledging that unfettered globalization is just as dangerous as unfettered markets that are unregulated, is that the nature of manufacturing is changing in a fundamental way, that these jobs are not the same. You talk about advanced manufacturing techniques and so forth. And so there's a trap also on the other side, which is you say, well, let's do it here That'll be great. It'll create a lot of jobs. And then, you know, essentially you're creating jobs for robots. And so you need to understand the ecology of the new economy and figure out how to how to invest in American growth that actually benefits American human beings. Well, a hundred percent. Advanced manufacturing, additive manufacturing, 3D printing, as people call it, this is no longer a hobbyist thing. This is something that is absolutely front and center of manufacturing. It's going to become more so. It it actually got a huge bump in the pandemic because your supply chains broke. You couldn't get parts from Italy or from Germany or from China. And suddenly, you know, okay, let's see what we really can make quickly on site at home. And it turns out you can make a lot. Now, let's put aside the labor issue for just a minute. That's good. In terms of energy savings, that's good in terms of environmental cost savings because you don't have to tote things through the South China Seas and expend X number of you know loads of carbon to do it. It's good from a geopolitical standpoint and a resiliency standpoint. But you're right. In order, and this is just classic case study in, in how productivity works, if you don't have education 
that keeps pace with technology, then technological change is net negative for jobs. So basically, if you don't have a workforce that is tooled up to use these new technologies and to really expand their own productivity and the productivity of of companies, then you are going to have fewer jobs. So that means that any incentives for manufacturing have to go along, I believe, has to have to be coupled with major shifts in education, in training. And man, we have got to find a way, and I hope Gina Raimondo can do it, to, to get corporations to part with some of their cash hoards to do something aside from buy automation technology and to actually help train some of the people to use it so we can end up in a win-win. Yeah, a good way to get the corporations to part with the, the those cash hoards is to tax them. But that's, you know, forgive me, I, you know, but we could, you know, conceivably use some of that money in a beneficial way. I think we also have to think of the fact that the workforce is changing, aging, people are working longer. It's likely they will continue to work longer. You have to make some choices between experience and youth and creating these jobs. And you have to compensate for the fact that you know, quantum levels of change occur within the context of careers. So people need to be retrained all the way, all the way along the way. So I guess one of the things that that strikes me, and I, I, you know, you address this in the book, but I think one of the things that strikes me is the changes that we've seen under the Biden administration, the recognitions of the shortcomings of unfettered globalization that we've seen in some other countries are a beginning. But there's still some big riddles to solve. How would you characterize the, the the riddles you think are the most important to solve? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I would say, you know, we've certainly touched on one riddle, which is it's not really a riddle in the sense that you know you need educational reforms and transformation to adapt to a changing technological marketplace. That was kind of the the crux of the American productivity gains in the post-World World War II period, where you had big shifts in secondary and tertiary education as the economy was shifting, and it ended up in a, a huge boom period for America. So we need that. We haven't quite nailed down how that's going to go for the reasons you say. Some of it's got to be changes in our high school and college system, but some of it is lifelong learning. Some of it is online learning. Some of it is skills-based training. But there's another big riddle, and this is something I'm just endlessly fascinated by is the connection between trade flows and capital markets. So let me be less wonky about that. We know that trade in real goods is changing. Supply chains are profoundly changing. There's some McKinsey Global Institute data, which is pretty good to show that 92% of global multinationals are actually localizing, regionalizing, decoupling, or diversifying. So it's not all just China US is broken but it's they're changing supply chains they're trying to hedge their bets hedge their risk. Now, what does that do to capital markets? What does that do to Wall Street and ultimately what does it do to the US primacy in the global financial system? Because therein lies a new, whole new policy landscape potentially for the next 5, 10, 20 years. China wants to do more trade in its own currency. It is doing a lot more trade in renminbi. It also wants to move away from the dollar. That's something that um, post-Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you really saw a lot of autocratic countries, a lot of emerging markets that are holding dollars saying, hey, you know, gosh, these reserves can be weaponized, which 
they can and they should have been, certainly in, in the case of U- Russia and to Ukraine. But it also creates a little bit of that one world, two systems paradigm that you saw in trade. It starts to create it in finance. Now, what does that mean? What does that do? It's not going to change the dollar as a global reserve currency in the next five or even 10 years. But over a couple of decades, I personally think, because I'm one of the rare liberals that actually cares about, about debt and about um, deficits and sort of T-bill markets, and I'm not a, a magic money tree person, I think that it will get harder if we don't think about using our fiscal stimulus as the Biden administration has done for really useful things, rather than, say, doing what Trump did and cutting taxes and then letting the companies just spend it in share buybacks. If we waste time on that kind of stuff, it's going to get a lot harder in the future for us to do the things we want to do as a country. I think we're going to start to have those guns and butter type debates that we haven't had for many decades. Uh, Yeah, and should have had for a variety of reasons. Who's getting it right? Where, where, who do you, who are some people that you think are doing a good job? In the administration or globally? Well, well, it could be here in the U.S. or it could be globally. Well, I love Jen Harris, you know, economist in the White House, the national security area. I think she's terrific. Um, I like some of the things that Jake Sullivan has been saying recently. Um, You know, I heard him at a Carnegie event. I, I spoke there myself. We all kind of know that there's a little bit still of a push-pull between more centrist parts of the administration and more business-friendly parts and the the really hard labor left part of the administration. And I'd like to see us continuing to really make sure that we think about the needs of labor, you know, in things like any kind of new trade deals that are cut, which I think Catherine Tai, I think, has done a great job of really putting that front and center. I admire Gina Raimondo's efforts around industrial strategy and kind of having some serious, often in the background, conversations with CEOs and being like, look, cut the, you know what, you got to pony up here. You got to gotta play ball. And, you know, it, to their credit, I think the CEOs, or maybe not to their credit, but to their self-interest, they want some direction. It's not like business is pulling the other way and saying, no, we don't want to hear. I mean, they're lining up to hear what policymakers have to say. They they just want certainty. Some of them, some of the big computer companies, big tech companies, they're going to continue to try and pretend like nothing's changed. But I think most companies are like, look, just tell us, do you want to be in Vietnam? Do you want us in Vietnam? Do you want us in Mexico? Do you, you know, how, what are the new rules of the road? That's where I think we are. I, I think some of the people who get this, what you're talking about, right, best are governors. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, and uh, you know, I look, you know, take Jared Polis in Colorado, or you take some of what Gina Raimondo did when she was governor of Rhode Island, or Gretchen Whitmer, or what they've done in Pennsylvania, California, because that's a much more local lens. You know, when you build a chip factory, it's a material impact on the economy. What about the rest of the world? I mean, it seems to me that. We've gone from a period where everybody was seeking to emulate the sort of Anglo-American market Darwinism in the 80s and 90s, that that we're moving more towards a world in which sort of this Northern European idea of capitalism, um, where there's more of a balance between labor and having a social safety net 
and fiscal responsibility and innovation and growth. They seem to have gotten that a little bit better. Am I? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think for sure. Although it's funny, when I worked in news magazines for many decades, we had a rule uh, when you wrote an economic story, you couldn't hold up a Scandinavian, like a small blonde nation as a as a <laughs> sort of a winner, because you would then have to apply that model to a much bigger and more diverse and problematic countries. So I think um, for sure the Scandinavians do it well. The Canadians have done well in some areas. I think the Germans have done well in some areas. If I could put some Canadian bankers in the room with some German manufacturers, you'd probably, and then add in a dash of like Scandinavian stakeholder capitalism, you, you'd probably do pretty well. Maybe you could have the Italians be the chefs or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, and certainly in that crowd, they would be in need of a chef. <laughs> I mean, you know, give credit to them for a lot of things, but uh, not that. Well, look, I, I just, you know, I, I know the book's been out for a bit. And I just felt it was super important that we get our people familiar with it, give them the chance to hear from you. And I hope they will go out now and buy The Homecoming and read about it and think about how the economy not only is changing, but should be changing. Because I think you've framed it in a very smart way. And uh, even if some folks in the administration aren't Frame it that way. Rana has so read read Rana's version of this, and and then you know get the get the message out. But anyway, congratulations, great Aww, book. Thanks, David. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for reading. And um, yeah, I, I hope people come away uh, having read it feeling optimistic, because I think there is a lot of room for that. Totally agree with you. All right, thank you, Rana. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with. Uh, you know, the next in our almost daily set of podcasts now, tomorrow dealing with the rest of the world. And uh, uh, we look forward to joining you then. Bye-bye.